Hello, I'm Chris Gilson, and I run the LSE US Center's blog on US politics and policy, USAP. On the 9th of October 2019, the US Center hosted Joseph Sternberg at our public event, How Millennial Economics Will Shape Up US Politics. At the event, he presented an overview of millennial economics in America and outlined how the Great Recession affected millennials in particular and how its impacts continue to resonate even as economic conditions have improved. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor of um, international relations here and the director of um, the U.S. Center at the LSE, uh, which is hosting tonight's um, lecture. This is the first lecture in... Um, the new Fallon Family Lecture Series, which has been made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy uh, Fallon Foundation, so we thank them for their support. And I'm very pleased to be welcoming tonight's um, speaker, uh, Joseph Sternberg, um, back to the LSE. I'll explain that in a minute. Joe's a member of the editorial board um, and the lead editorial writer on European affairs uh, for the Wall Street Journal. He also writes a, a bi-weekly political economics uh, column on Europe. He's written widely on Europe from the Eurozone economic crisis to European tax policy uh, to trade and regulatory matters. And before moving to, um, to London, um, a few years back, uh, he was the editorial page uh, writer uh, in Hong Kong for um, for the Wall Street Journal's Business Asia column, and before that, um, a writer for the New York Sun, and before that, you were the managing editor for the Public Interest, right? Yeah. So um, that's for the boomers in here. Um, that's a an old magazine that no longer exists. Um, but it was great in its day. Um, Joe is a, a graduate of the College of uh, William uh, and Mary, and that's pretty good, but he was also part of the general course here in the International Relations Department, uh, which is better, um, many years ago. Um, he's here tonight to talk about uh, his new book, well, you see the copies out there. Um, my copy is right over there. Um, the Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers uh, Stole um, the Millennials' uh, Economic uh, Future. The book has been uh, extensively reviewed. Uh, we thought it'd be a really good way to kick off the uh, Fallon Family Series and uh, new academic year. Um, and so we asked Joe to come and um, and give us an overview of the the argument in the book, um, and and then what we'll do. He'll do that for about I don't know 35 minutes or so, and then we'll just we'll open it up to um, to to questions, and I'll do my best to get um, you know everybody uh, in. So um, with that, please join me in giving Joe Sternberg a nice big LSE welcome. Thanks, and because I'm a millennial, I'm going to have to spend the first couple minutes of this talk fumfering about with uh, technology. I think I'm supposed to be turning on this microphone. Well, thank you, Peter, for that introduction and for inviting me to uh, join you and the LSE community here this evening. 
And thanks to all of you uh, for coming. I see a lot of people who look like uh, likely millennials or members of Generation Z. I'm sure you are excited to spend an hour and a half with us here this evening so I can tell you how miserable you all are. Um, actually, how miserable we all are, because I am a millennial myself, uh, even though I am now at the advanced age of 37. We're going to talk a little bit uh, later about how one fact about millennials is that some of us are older than you think we are. And before I go any further, I want to point out that in addition to being an alumnus of the general course, uh, a portion of this book was actually written right here in the LSE library last year. And I will say that as I was crafting paragraph after paragraph after dismal paragraph about everything that's going wrong for young people in the modern economy, I had to gamely resist the temptation to jump up on a table and shout out, we're all doomed. Now, my topic for this evening is how millennial economics will shake up U.S. politics. And if I could change one thing about this title that we agreed on, it would be the word will, because I actually think that the shakeup already is well underway. Um, in my experience, uh, living outside of the U.S. for about 13 years now, backbench members of the U.S. House of Representatives are generally not global celebrities. And yet, I think most people in this room have probably heard of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, who is a recently elected millennial member of the U.S. Congress. So clearly something is going on in terms of youth participation in American politics if suddenly we have millennials making such a big splash so quickly uh, on their entrance into the system. And it goes deeper than that. I mean, some of the 80,000 people who are currently running for the Democratic nomination for president are actually millennials. Um, I think that clearly if you look at some of the agendas of, millennial, of uh, presidential candidates in that race, things like the student loan forgiveness plans from Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, they think that millennial voters are going to be a key part of any viable electoral coalition in 2020. So I think it's worth talking a little bit about uh, millennial politics. And to understand that, I think that you do have to understand millennial economics. And you know, I say this mindful of the fact that economists sometimes can overinterpret the significance of economics in terms of voting, affiliation, or behavior. But I do think that actually in the case of American millennials, the economics matters a lot because a lot of the issues that millennials face and even some of the cultural or political frustrations that we feel um, you know, that might not seem directly related to economics actually do trace back in one form or another to the way that the economy has failed us, uh, particularly over the past 10 years. So my plan for this evening is to trace through what I think are some of the most important pathways between the millennial economy and some of the political phenomena that you can expect to see from uh, American millennials, both in 2020 and in elections after that. And I am going to do this by uh, starting out talking a little bit about the avocado paradox, um, which I, you know, is something that I spent a fair amount of time thinking about, if, as you do if you're writing a book about millennials. So what is this avocado paradox? It started uh, in 2017, some of you might remember, with an Australian property magnate named Tim Gurner who made global headlines, unfortunately, for arguing on national television in Australia that the reason millennials can't buy property, can't save for a deposit on a house, 
is because we waste too much money on avocado toast for, for brunch every weekend. Now, you will expect uh, and not be surprised to hear that the millennial response to this was one of absolute fury, uh, you know, which found itself vented on Twitter. The New York Times at one point actually calculated how many years a millennial would have to forego any expensive brunch whatsoever in order to be able to afford a down payment on the median American home and discovered it would be about 113 years. But what I discovered is that those comments resonated in a different way with a lot of baby boomers in America in particular who found themselves nodding their heads. I think that what has developed um, you know, both economically and politically in America is this phenomenon where you have these two very large cohorts in the population who are talking past each other on a lot of these economic issues. So the baby boomers look at millennials and they see a generation that has never had it so good. Uh, I mean, by a lot of measures, certainly not all of them, uh, but by a lot of measures, American millennials are some of the most prosperous people human history has ever known. We have daily conveniences that have not been available to any previous generation. Uh, we can do all of our homework on Google. Uh, we can hail a cab over Uber before we even have to step out into the rain and the curb. Uh, we can find our mates on Tinder. We can have, uh, you know, we are out from under the shadow of a lot of diseases that used to plague previous generations. We haven't had to cope with mass conscription the way the boomers did in the, you know, Vietnam generation. So boomers look at us and they think, what are you kids complaining about? The boomers think that they have done everything that they possibly can to give us a comfortable today. And yet millennials look at the economy and they see a completely different situation. They say, well, yeah, I have the smartphone in my pocket, but I don't have stable employment. You know, I'm having trouble getting onto the career ladder. You know, I can find an app that will help me arrange my uh, next rental without the need of a you know, property agent or anything, but it is going to be a rental because I can't afford to get onto the property ladder in the way that my boomer parents did at this age. Um, I'm struggling to save for retirement because I don't have a full-time salaried position with a retirement fund available to me. So the condition that you have is a, a cohort in the form of millennials who have a very comfortable today, but a much more tenuous tomorrow than the boomers would have expected to have at this point in their economic life cycle. I think that that really is the economic dysfunction that I want to uh, probe into this evening. I want to talk a little bit about what that insecure tomorrow looks like to American millennials and some of the ways that this can play itself out in uh, politics. First, though, I mean, we're going to have to understand what a millennial is, uh, which is something that I discovered very soon after I started writing the book. There's a actually a lot of confusion about. So, you know, the most common definition that you're going to encounter uh, is a cohort born between around 1981 and 1996. Uh, so I count as a millennial despite the gray hair in my beard because I was born in 1982. Uh, you know, one important fact about millennials is that we are a large cohort in the American population. There are about 80 million of us, depending on how you count. Uh, that means that we are roughly evenly matched numerically with the baby boomers. Uh, another important fact about us is that we are older than people tend to think that we are. I mean, if you were born in 1981, you're going to be pushing 40 in another couple of years. Uh, that has a bunch of important uh, economic implications that I'll talk about in a few minutes. 
Um, you know, one important fact about the millennials in America in particular is that we're also very diverse. Um, you know, I think that the millennial cohort has been augmented by immigration, uh, much more so than the boomers were. Uh, and I think that has created a very different worldview among millennials on a bunch of uh, issues uh, you know, that are currently dominating American politics, such as immigration or trade policy. I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a few minutes. And one important fact about the millennial life cycle, which uh, you have to keep in mind if you're going to put these political developments in perspective, is the environment that American millennials grew up in. So if you were born in the 80s, uh, you really came of age in the 1990s, which was a very prosperous period in American history. Now, there were economic challenges, and the boomers were aware of those challenges. You can go back and look at news clippings from that era of political debates, and you'll see a lot of discussion about the pressures of globalization, America's transformation away from a manufacturing economy into a services economy. But the key point was that by that point, uh, the boomers thought that they had figured out what they could tell their millennial children uh, to survive that experience, to protect our, to future-proof ourselves so that we could have a secure economic future. So the kind of advice that we were getting was that we could sustain the sort of prosperity that we were growing up with by following the same general rules that the boomers had followed, only more so. So, for example, um, you know, the four-year college degree would be an important component of that story. Even if we ended up having to borrow much more than our boomer parents had had to borrow to finance that education, it would be worth it because it would be an investment in our future. We would be future-proofing ourselves against changes in the economy. Homeownership would be a really important piece of the economic picture for American millennials. Uh, homeownership had lifted a lot of boomers into the middle class. It had given them a way of accumulating an asset that would, uh, you know, they could hold against their future, their retirement. Uh, millennials should expect to do the same. You know, the 90s was really an era when you saw this new emphasis on personal responsibility and things like uh, retirement savings. I think that, that was really the era when you started seeing all of these ads on TV for, uh, you know, 401k programs, you know, the American form of uh, individual retirement account. Uh, you know, the sense that the future was something that you could embrace, that you could take charge of, that would work for you if you followed the, the right rules. And politically, it was the era of the third way, you know, of Bill Clinton's third way of new labor here. It became, in the early 2000s, the era of compassionate conservatism on the American right. You know, I think that the boomers really thought that they had figured out the right way to do public policy so that they could harness the protective power of the state in some ways, but also the productive power of the market in other ways. And so, you know, if you were a millennial before 2008, it was not without its challenges. I mean, some of us might have had to deal very early on with the economic slump of the, you know, bursting of the dot-com bubble when we were in our late teens. Um, you know, certainly the effects of the 9-11 terror attacks. Uh, but it also seemed like, you know, there were ways forward. That there was a, a viable economic solution for us that we could figure out what the path would be uh, that would make us as prosperous and secure as our parents had been. Well, the problem is that that all flew out the window with the global financial crisis and the Great Recession that came after it. And, you know, I think that one of the things that has surprised me a little bit uh, since the book came out in May is how much confusion there still seems to be about what actually happened to millennials during that event. Um, because I think that if you were a millennial, particularly a, a somewhat older millennial like myself who was living through it, it seemed so acute. 
Uh, and yet what I discovered when I was researching the book is that really those economic events affected different age cohorts very differently. And I think that the way that you looked at that experience of the financial crisis and the Great Recession in America depends a lot on how old you were at the time. So I think that one key fact about this in the U.S. context is the labor market, which uh, has really never quite worked right for millennials. You know, one consequence of the fact that you had this large cohort uh, you know, that was all born in the 80s into the early 90s is that economically, we expected to be coming online in the labor market right around the time that the financial crisis and the Great Recession hit. So you automatically have this problem with a large tranche of young workers who are always particularly vulnerable in an economic downturn entering the labor market at a time when the labor market was unusually bad. And, you know, you hear some argument from boomers about whether maybe the recession in the early 1980s was a little bit worse in terms of the unemployment rate or any of those metrics. But the reality is that the downturn in America in the Great Recession in terms of the contraction in GDP, in terms of the severity of the unemployment spike and the length of time that unemployment remained higher than normal afterwards, both meant that that was a very severe downturn for the American economy, and it also meant that millennials were exposed to that for a very long time. Uh, even after the Great Recession was technically over, you would have year after year when new millennials were trying to enter the labor market and unemployment was still unusually high and the labor market was unusually soft. And this had a bunch of implications for American millennials. You know, it meant that we faced more competition with older workers, even at the relatively entry level of the career ladder. Um, you can look at some research that suggests that in some areas that were particularly hard hit by the recession, uh, job ads that might once not have required any prior experience, you know, that would have been purely entry-level job for you know, someone's first job after graduation, suddenly those employers were able to demand a year or two of previous experience because you had older workers who were competing for those entry-level jobs. Um, millennials found that because of the poor job market, once you were on the ladder, you couldn't hop between different jobs. You know, for young workers, job hopping between a bunch of different employers very early on is actually a very important form of career development. It's the way that you upskill. It's the way that you find the thing that you're really good at doing, uh, you know, that you can build a career out of. A lot of those opportunities uh, dried up because once millennials did claw their way onto that first rung of the career ladder, they wanted to stay in place. They didn't trust that there would continue to be opportunities or job security for them uh, if they did switch. You know, that has delayed uh, earnings growth for a lot of millennials because certainly job hopping is one of the ways that you push yourself up the salary ladder uh, as well. Um, so, you know, you already had all of these stresses and already you can see that a lot of the advice that you would have been getting from your boomer parents in that era was breaking down. You know, it was difficult for you to get yourself set up in that career. It was difficult for you to get that first job. And if you couldn't get yourself on the career and uh, pay ladder early enough, you were going to struggle to hit all of these other milestones. I mean, you can't get a mortgage if you don't have a job. So, you know, already you're creating a lot of stress for millennials in the housing market. You can't save for retirement if you don't have a job because you won't be eligible for the 401k individual retirement plan. Um, you know, you end up with a lot of stress. Uh, I think that this is where a lot of the stress uh, from the student debt crisis comes from. You know, it's not just the debt load 
uh, that millennials were carrying through this period. It was also the fact that the job market was malfunctioning in ways that made it harder to see how you would afford to repay that debt over time. So what was a millennial supposed to do? I mean, another piece of the, the story that I tell here is how we didn't really get good advice from the, the boomers who were basically telling their millennial children to continue trying to do the thing that had worked before and hope that it would start working. Um, so, you know, I think that that was, you know, one thing that some millennials experienced was uh, feeling themselves pushed into getting more and more education, partly because, you know, if you had graduated with that four-year undergraduate degree that was supposed to give you job security, that wasn't working out. One thing that you could try to do was go back for a graduate degree, see if that might help. Um, you know, I think that this is where a certain amount of stress in the, uh, you know, student loan crisis is coming from. Uh, you know, particularly if people went through that process and then still found that they weren't getting the kind of uh, job opportunities that they would have hoped for. You know, other people, uh, you know, sort of strangely might have found that they couldn't get the education that they did want because, you know, the economics of the job market were making it difficult for them to stay in school. Which is an important point to remember about a lot of this. I mean, you know, we tend to think of the millennials as a monolith. Uh, there are, but you know, millennials are all different people, and I think that really the story that you can tell if you look at the education situation, where some people were pushed to get too much education and other people weren't able to get enough, is that one of the things that went a little haywire in the uh, period after the Great Recession is it became difficult for each individual millennial to figure out what was the right thing for that person to do to navigate this new economic environment. Uh, and of course, the longer that malfunction in the labor market persisted, the harder it was going to become to hit any of these milestones. And this is you know, one of the first places where the fact that millennials are older than you think we are comes into play. And I can tell you that I'm in the process of, uh, you know, at the age of 37, for the first time uh, buying a property and climbing onto the property ladder. And when you're there talking to a mortgage broker about getting a 30-year mortgage when you're 37, you all of a sudden start thinking, how am I going to pay this loan off before I expect to retire? So, you know, I think that for a lot of millennials, the more that these various milestones get delayed, the more economic stress it creates at the household level, and we should expect that that's going to filter through to the politics in, in various ways. So, and you can see a lot of this happening in, you know, the economic data. You can see it in numbers that suggest that uh, millennial earnings are falling behind, uh, you know, what the boomers had achieved at this point in their life cycle. Uh, it becomes easy to understand the student debt crisis once you uh, understand the problems in the job market. Um, because, you know, the very simple equation is that if you have escalating educational costs, rising loans, and a soft job market or earnings, add all of those together and you're going to get a disaster for a lot of millennials. Um, you know, you can see that homeownership for millennials is way down at this point in our life cycle compared to the boomers. And you can see study after study survey results suggesting that millennials just continue feeling a lot of financial strain in their personal lives. And I think that an important point about a lot of this is that for various reasons, the policy response that we saw from our uh, elected you know, policymakers in that era, most of them baby boomers by that point, ended up being all wrong for us. Um, you know, one issue that I grew very interested in was monetary policy. We heard a lot about the effect of very low interest rates for a long time. 
quantitative easing. I mean, that had subtle generational imp implications, I discovered. You know, some of the biggest beneficiaries of those policies were larger companies at the expense of smaller companies, and yet millennials were the younger workers who were disproportionately relying on smaller companies, as young workers always do, uh, to create entry-level employment opportunities for us. So you could see a lot of um, you know, policy responses there that just weren't meeting the needs of millennials as well-intentioned as they were. I think the problem is that these effects are going to continue for a long time, uh, which is something that uh, my sense, and you know, judging from the reaction I've gotten to the book so far, uh, particularly from boomers, is something that uh, the baby boom generation really does not understand about a lot of these problems. I think that one of the most annoying uh, things that I hear from boomers when I talk about these issues is, well, it's all better now. You know, the unemployment rate, uh, both overall and the youth unemployment rate in America, are now at historic lows. So look at this graph of how low your unemployment rate is and then be glad that the crisis is over. And an important point to remember is that that's not actually true for a lot of millennials. Because of all of the time that we have lost uh, in the aftermath of the Great Recession and the slow growth recovery period, um, you know, I think that there's a growing body of research that suggests that if you graduate and try to enter the workforce during a recession when unemployment is very high, uh, it will take you a decade or even more to recover the cumulative lifetime earnings that you have lost early on. And anecdotally, one thing that I do hear from a lot of millennials, including older millennials still at this point, with the economy performing reasonably well, it's just the sense that they are way behind where they expected to be at this point in their life. You know, that they haven't yet been able to climb onto the property ladder, that they had expected to be more established in their careers than they are, um, that they had expected to have built up a bit more of a retirement nest egg by now. I mean, those are legitimate concerns because the boomers had managed to do a lot of those things by this point in their life cycle. So, you know, once you understand that, you understand why millennials are still voting like people in crisis, even if uh, statisticians will try to tell us the economic crisis is over. Um, you know, I think that a, a potent political issue in the U.S. right now is the student loan crisis, and that will continue to be potent for as long as millennials feel like we are not getting far enough ahead in the labor market to be able to afford the debt burdens that we are uh, laboring under. Yeah, I think that uh, you know, my experience and others shows that there's going to continue being a lot of unease over very long-term uh, related to problems millennials have experienced in the housing market. Uh, because if you haven't been able to climb on the ladder, at a certain point you have to wonder if you ever will. And if you don't own a home uh, while you're still working, you have to wonder you know, what assets am I going to have available to support myself in my retirement? And, you know, this is going to be a fiscal issue, too. Are we ready for the implications of having a large retired population uh, that does not have the economic security of home ownership and actually has much higher housing costs because they've had to rent their entire lives? Um, you know, and of course, the pensions are going to be a looming problem for millennials if we have lost all of this time earlier in our careers when we ought to have been trying to accumulate um, you know, pension nest egg for ourselves. Um, you know, how do you make that up? How do you make that up particularly when you're also dealing with these uh, student loan debts? 
So, you know, it's not hard to understand why exactly it is that, you know, millennials keep voting this way and this, or, or keep expressing so much frustration. And this is a big point that I have to make to a lot of uh, boomers, and it actually kind of stretches across the political divide. I, I get this sometimes from boomers, both on the political left and the political right. Don't just look at the economic data, look at how millennials are voting. And I think that you increasingly see signs in opinion polling uh, and voting behavior that millennials are voting like people who are in crisis, and we should take that seriously, because often if you dig deeply enough, you discover we are in economic crisis. So, the final point to make about all of this, incidentally, remember I spoke a few minutes ago about all of these rules and guidelines that we inherited from the boomers about how to get ahead. And I think that an overarching sort of cultural or sociological point you can make about some of these economic phenomenon is you know, what it feels like to be a millennial who is in this environment where the rule book that we were taught by our parents seems not to be working and no one has any good advice for us about how we're going to actually chart a new path for ourselves. I think that this is the source of a lot of frustration uh, for millennials too that can find itself into the political realm in some interesting ways. So now I want to talk a little bit about what uh, all of this, you know, dreary past 10 years might mean for the political future. You know, how are these uh, millennial economic trends going to affect U.S. politics either in 2020 or beyond? Well, I mean, there is some good news. I think the good news for millennials is that the job market is functioning better than it was. Uh, although we aren't out of the woods yet. I mean, we have the lifetime earnings uh, shortfall that we have to find some way to make up. And the big question I'm thinking about now is if um, we are right to be worried that another recession is on the horizon at some point, what is that going to mean for a millennial cohort that hasn't fully recovered from the last one? So I think that this is going to be an interesting uh, challenge that I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I think that it is going to become a very relevant question uh, if that kind of economic downturn does happen uh, to a generation that really is not ready for it and might struggle to be resilient in the face of it. Uh, we don't know the consequences of having a large generation that is going to live as long as the millennials will without having that cushion of home ownership the way that so many American boomers have. Uh, that is going to be an economic issue. Um, you know, I, don't, I despair of whether there's going to be a solution to the student debt crisis in America right now. I mean, one feature we can talk about this a little later if people are interested, but one thing that I have noticed about a lot of the policy proposals to date is that they push the debt relief far enough into the future that the taxpayers who will end up having to underwrite a lot of this debt relief will be millennials instead of baby boomers. Uh, they'll have retired at that point. So I think one challenge millennials are going to have is how can we avoid getting sold solutions to some of these problems uh, that don't have the character of baby boomers gifting to us our own future tax payments. And we're going to have a looming fiscal problem. I think that we're going to have to deal with a burden of uh, an entitlement state and entitlement systems for elderly recipients that will be growing more and more expensive for us at the same time that we are going to have our own fiscal priorities in the political sphere. So, you know, if you think of all of these challenges, um, you know, one thing that I hear from my compatriots on the free market political right in America 
is frustration that millennials are all socialists. And what I say is, I mean, if you look at what has actually happened to millennials in the, over the past 10 years, are you really surprised? Um, I think that the uh, key fact here is frustration. I think that there is a lot of frustration with the sense that the boomer economic model didn't work for us in important ways. Uh, that the boomer uh, economic rules have failed us, that uh, you know, boomer governance was not good for us in the 10 years, particularly after the crisis. Now, does that actually mean we are all socialists? I'm not convinced. I think that uh, oftentimes the headline numbers in these polls will suggest that we are. Uh, it's not always clear that uh, you know, my fellow millennials understand what socialism is. If you look at detailed polling on attitudes toward entrepreneurship or specific things that the government does or doesn't do, uh, if you look at a bunch of social attitudes, you'll discover that millennials are actually all over the map. I think that the message that I get from this is that politically, we're still trying to find our own way. The reason we might feel drawn to socialism, at least in the abstract, is that right now the most vocal politicians who are outside of this boomer policymaking mold happen to be people on the left. It's the Bernie Sanders of the world, it's the Jeremy Corbyns of the world, it's the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. That is the side who is also actually offering something that is really new and different to millennial ears, even if we might not always be entirely convinced that these plans are going to work. I mean, one problem that I think politically Republicans have in America right now is Donald Trump. And the problem with him is that he's such a boomer. If you look at a lot of his uh, policies through a generational lens, all of the stuff about trade, all of the stuff about immigration, it is representative of boomer policy fixations that go back to the 70s and 80s that are completely foreign to the concerns that millennials have. You know, we grew up not being afraid of globalization in the same way. We, do, you know, we grew up as a generation uh, with a much higher proportion of immigrants than the boomers. We don't understand why these issues are controversial. And yet, I think that the political right uh, is so bound up in Trump at the moment that is keeping them from offering some kind of competition to the socialist left for the millennial vote. So I think that the key issue here is going to be something different. And if you are a millennial who is looking for different policies or different politics, what might those different things be? Well, you know, ask me after I've written my second or third book, because I'm not sure exactly what the answer to that question is right now. Um, I mean, you can certainly point to some issues that we're going to have to resolve. I think in America, the student debt crisis is going to be a major economic and social issue that we are going to have to come up with some resolution for. I don't know what that is. Um, I think that certainly the environmental action is something that is going to be much more important to millennials of both the left and the right uh, than it has been to many boomers. Um, so, And you can already see some of these issues bubbling along in millennial politics, but the problem that our politicians, our millennial politicians, are going to have to solve will be a freedom of action problem. It's going to be if you have a baby boomer generation and a millennial generation who are roughly the same size and are both jostling around with each other in the electorate at the same time, how are millennials going to persuade the boomers to relinquish enough power for the millennials to start acting on some of our own priorities? Uh, you know, I think that this is sort of a problem that Republicans are having to grapple with uh, in the era of Trump. Uh, but it is going to be an urgent problem uh, you know, across the political spectrum in various ways moving forward. 
you know, how the entitlement burden is going to have to become a bipartisan issue in a way that it hasn't been before because it's going to be bound up in this freedom of action issue. You know, we have millennial members of Congress now. In the American system, the greatest power that the Congress has is the power of the purse. And yet millennial politicians in America are not going to be able to act on a lot of our spending priorities for the government if we also have to deal with the overhang of various entitlement burdens that the boomers have passed on to us unreformed. So I think that's going to be a major challenge. And that is going to affect our ability to act on issues like uh, climate policy uh, in ways that we might decide matter to us because we're going to have to figure out where will the resources come from for us to tackle those problems. And I think beneath all of that, and the thought that I'll leave you with uh, before we get to the Q&A, is going to be this bigger issue of the rules that uh, millennials have to follow. I think that the big challenge that we're going to face both politically and in our own economic lives is going to be figuring out what are the new rules that you have to follow to be successful in this economy if the old rules that we've inherited haven't worked for us. I'm not sure what those uh, new rules are going to be, uh, but I think that this is going to be something that is going to be lurking in the background of a lot of these policy debates as millennials try to figure out both how we can solve our own problems and how we can avoid making uh, a bunch of the mistakes that we saw the boomers make uh, over the past 10 years. So with that not at all thought-provoking presentation, I'm going to leave it there. And I actually look forward to the Q&A, which is always the most fun part for me. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of questions. Um, I, I think I'll exercise the chair's prerogative and ask the first, which is, so you make a, um, a very good case uh, in the book, and you did hear very much some of, of the argument, um, that millennials have been, been hammered. Um, and so, and I think implicitly a very strong case um, for um, placing the burden of adjustment on the boomers. And so I suppose the first question is that I have is, um, why not just do that? Why not, um, oh, she's got a plan. Um, it's called a wealth tax. Why not just institute Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, which will generate, uh, you know, good economists looking at it over 10 years think it'll generate about 2.75 trillion. You know, and I mean, a trillion here, a trillion there, eventually that adds up to real money. Um, that you use that to deal with something like the college debt problem. I mean, you could use it also going forward for, you know, uh, free college tuition, but you're talking about a kind of pent-up problem or the, the uh, existing burden. Um, so why not redistribute wealth to deal with this and go after the boomers who've done very well? Well, I mean, certainly that approach has a intuitive appeal to a lot of millennial voters right now, which is, I think, one reason that Elizabeth Warren is, um, you know, persisting the way that she is in the uh, primary field right now and has emerged as one of the leading candidates in a very crowded field. And 
anecdotally, I can tell you from my uh, Facebook feed where I have a bunch of friends uh, across the political spectrum, actually a lot of older uh, millennials I'm friends with on the political left are very excited about Elizabeth Warren, I think for much that reason. Now the problem with it, there, there are a couple potential pitfalls with, with this approach uh, from a millennial's perspective and uh, you know why I wish the, the political right were doing a somewhat better job of uh, you know arguing that kind of proposal from more of a generational perspective. One is this question of whether there is going to be enough uh, money among all of the rich people to support these programs. So, I mean, you have a wide variety of estimates of how much money a wealth tax is actually going to raise. Um, I think that, you know, the experience in most places that have tried them is that they usually end up disappointing in terms of the revenue. The real fact about a lot of these spending priorities, whether it's entitlements uh, in America or the student loan forgiveness, and something that America can observe in the European experience is that actually the real money is in the middle class. And so I think that for a lot of these programs to be viable over the long term, instead of chasing the phantom revenue that you think that you might or might not be able to raise from a wealth tax, America would have to impose some form of consumption tax, like a value-added tax. And you know, there's been discussion about this in the US for a while. It's fairly unpopular. I think that the key point from that, though, first off, already you're getting away from this idea of taxing wealthy boomers to fund a lot of these spending priorities. And actually, if you get the numbers, you know, the numbers start adding up to the point where it becomes clear that you will have to impose higher taxes on the uh, middle class. And then you get into this generational fairness issue where uh, you know, millennials might start asking ourselves, why is it that we have to be thinking about introducing something like a value-added tax that is going to collect a higher proportion of our productive output? You know, a higher proportion of the economy will have to go for tax revenue uh, over the longer term to fund all of these programs when the boomers were not prepared to pay that portion themselves which is at least an interesting difference between this debate in America and the debate here in Europe, because at least uh, the boomer middle class in Europe did demonstrate that they were prepared to pay somewhat higher proportions of their output in taxes over their lifetime, even if it still wasn't enough. But the differential in America is going to be even bigger. And I think that you know, the interesting question there to ask is not you know, do millennials embrace an Elizabeth Warren-style wealth tax right now, but what, where do millennial voters go once it becomes clear that that wealth tax will not be enough on its own to fund, you know, some of these priorities? Why don't we take the hand back to the uh, gentleman in the center. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, my name's Dan Hobster. Um, I, thanks very much for your, your, your talk. It's very illuminating. I, um, I suppose my question really was, it, it seemed very polite in nature. Um, there was very much a focus on the kind of uh, uh, lost opportunities there for, millennial, for the millennial cohort post-financial crisis, not quite being in the right job subsequently, et cetera. My question really was, to what extent do you think that is a deliberate policy on behalf of the boomers who've dominated politics? So, you know, just, 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 just to give some examples, you know, I think if you were to, t if you were to take London, for example, I think average housing price as a percentage of income has been three to four times um, for 30 years. It's currently running at 15 times. Um, a lot of people talking about that being 
linked to uh, quantitative easing. Um, another one being, for example, you, you mentioned U.S. college costs. Um, you know that that has overtaken credit card debt as the second largest uh, pool of debt in the U.S. I think the U.S. interest rate is currently two percent, ten years at one point five percent. Credit card debt, uh, sorry, um, uh, student debt, you know, materially above that. Um, and then you know, think about pensions in the U.K. You know, you, you you've now moved into a situation where where baby boomers as a cohort in terms of assets are, are, are one of the wealthiest subsegments, and yet we have a policy that's dedicated to a triple lock pension um, while austerity is, is imposed on, on everyone else. I mean, it seems to me like there are some very obvious, deliberate policies there. Uh, and, and just, sorry, while I'm at it, on my, on my, uh, on my soapbox, the, 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 you know, in terms of the housing, uh, you know, you've got sort of 2% of UK land that's been built on with seemingly 98% of it being kind of, you know, areas of outstanding natural beauty. Don't, you know, it doesn't seem to me like that's an insurmountable barrier were the will there. Um, so yeah, to what extent do you think it's deliberate? Oh, I am so glad you asked that because they absolutely did it on purpose. Um, you know, it's, it's not an accident that I settled on the title, the theft of a decade. It, a lot of this was deliberate policy choices they made. Some of it uh, was an attempt uh, in various ways to borrow economic growth for today from the future in ways that had consequences for millennials. I think oftentimes it was actually deliberate policy choices that were made um, in, a, in an attempt to assuage various uh, boomer voter constituencies without sufficient thought for the implications for millennials. So let's talk about a bunch of the dimensions that you mentioned where you can see this happening. So in the, in the US, uh, housing is a particularly good example because there uh, in America, there was a very direct link between the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing policies and a lot of action that we saw out of uh, the Bush administration and then the Obama administration and the Treasury Department and the housing market. It's much more direct uh, even than I think the effect was here uh, because as part of QE in America, the Federal Reserve was actually buying mortgage-backed securities for you know, a period. And the theory there was that uh, you know housing was the thing that had gone wrong in the crisis. So if we could put a floor under the housing market any way possible, uh, that would put the economy back on the correct footing. And that ended up working out reasonably well for uh, older generations who owned homes who could benefit from the appreciation and housing value that these policies created. Uh, there was never really a thought for what was going to happen if you were actually in a situation where house prices had been way too elevated for various reasons before the crisis, and now you were guaranteeing that this whole new millennial cohort that was starting to come online was going to struggle to buy into the housing market. So, you know, that was a you know, direct policy ex example I talk about a fair bit in the book, where policymakers were making a deliberate choice that the way that they were going to try to pull the U.S. economy out of the slump was going to be by inflating an asset value in a way that would make it hard for millennials to cope. Um, you know, I think that the, the student debt crisis is another example of this. I mean, there are all sorts of uh, you know, interesting thoughts going on about exactly why it is that college costs in America uh, have skyrocketed so much faster than the rate of inflation. But it's also true that there was a certain uh, you know, attempt in the post-crisis period to encourage even more people to go to college if they, uh, you know, as an attempt to try to pull ourselves out of this bad job market. Um, and at the same time, you had a whole bunch of policies that had come in on the, under the boomer era that was going to make it difficult for millennials to climb out from under that. 
Um, so for example, you know, the boomers had become politically so concerned with the thought that uh, you know, people might try to weasel out of their student loans by declaring bankruptcy, that they made the you know, student loan the one debt in America that you can't clear in a bankruptcy proceeding. Um, you know, that was a deliberate attempt to try to push young people into education by creating ultra-low interest rates on the student loans while you were muting any kind of market signal about whether that was a good investment. Um, you know, here in the UK, I think that certainly there are problems in the housing market related to housing supply and the fact that you, you know, just the other day I was watching one of the news channels had done a report about homelessness in rural England and the real takeaway in the town that they visited uh, was that actually a lot of the older homeowners are strenuously resisting any attempt to build new housing that might ruin their views. So, you know, there has to be kind of this generational issue here where, you know, in the abstract you will hear uh, older homeowners saying, well, I guess we need new supply somewhere, but just not anywhere near me. Uh, this is a, a common problem in uh, both the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, in the U.S., the problem is uh, that when the job market has worked for millennials, it has tended to pull us into urban areas uh, where older homeowners and voters have been most successful in using the zoning process to restrict the supply of new housing. Um, so, you know, absolutely a lot of these factors were the result of uh, policy choices uh, that either were an explicit attempt to try to borrow from the future in some way to goose growth, as you saw with the, the housing market in QE, or just were insufficiently curious about what some of the generational impacts might be. I mean, you know, another issue on monetary policy that I looked at was that there was this, uh, there's been this widespread assumption um, that these unconventional monetary policies lift all boats in the economy equally. And that isn't true even when it comes to issues like, um, you know, corporate investment and the, the availability of credit for that. Um, you can start to see some research that suggests that larger companies uh, that are statistically more likely to have older workforces tended to benefit more from a lot of these unconventional policies than smaller firms tended to benefit. You know, that had a generational impact that some enterprising researcher at the Fed might have wanted to be interested in at some point, but you don't hear a lot of discussion about that kind of issue even, even today. Um, so I think that it is a combination of policy choice, but also really a culpable lack of curiosity about how these policies were going to interact with the particularly large cohort that you had emerging into the labor force at that time. Um, thank you so much for being here and for your talk. It's been really interesting. So my question is, uh, a big issue in U.S. politics is the lack of voter turnout among the younger generations. Um, so... I mean, this might be more skewed towards maybe the older Gen Zers since millennials are getting older now, but how do you reconcile a shakeup in U.S. politics if they won't actually go out and vote as much or, like, make the changes? Um, or alternatively, do you think because of the current economic crisis that they will start going out and voting more and that trend will sort of change? Well, there are some interesting age effects there that I'm not sure I fully understand myself because, of course, young people tend not to vote in particularly large numbers, and the millennials are now aging into the point where you would expect that we will start becoming more politically active. So part of the answer to that question might have to wait for a little bit. 
But also remember that um, not voting is a form of political action too. This is something that often gets forgotten. And you know, there have been some pollsters who have suggested that in 2016, if Hillary Clinton had managed to win millennial votes in the same proportion that Barack Obama had won millennial voters in his elections, uh, Hillary Clinton would be the president right now. Uh, and so there, I think the issue was kind of, if you, if you think about something like the 2016 election through a generational lens, uh, instead of through a partisan lens, uh, you can see how it was really difficult for millennials to get excited about either candidate. And the choice was to either gravitate toward third party candidates or to stay home. Um, and so now I think that a test of this hypothesis of mine is going to be the 2020 election, depending on who the Democratic nominee ends up being. And if it's someone like an Elizabeth Warren who has a plan, which I might not think is a particularly plausible plan, but is nonetheless a plan on something like student debt that is, supposed, that is deliberately calculated to appeal to millennial voters, um, you know, can millennials actually shake up the political process in some important way by turning out for that? It's also just worth pointing out, right, in the 2018 midterm, the millennial vote went up considerably mm -hmm. by normal standards in the United States. Um, yeah. Thank you. From LSE's International Relations Department, the European Institute. Um, very much enjoyed the talk, but I wanted to push you a bit on the dichotomous frame. I mean, you alluded in your beginning to the fact that there's more than one generation at play. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit older than you. I'm not going to admit to you how much, but I'm an <laughs> Xer rather than mm -hmm. a millennial, and my son is a Z. And obviously, these two other cohorts are in the political spectrum. Now, Z is now reaching voting age and more mm -hmm. coming. X is present. Should we, in fact, really be thinking of this more in terms of boomer exceptionalism? And how do these other two cohorts play out? Um, and if there is really more of an argument about boomer exceptionalism, then presumably the balance of power is starting to swing against them. Um, I will, uh, you will not be surprised to hear that you are not the first member of Generation X who has been a little disappointed uh, not to be included in, in this uh, generational war that I am uh, starting here. Um, so I, I, part of the issue, I mean, I think the way I would answer that is to say that it's not necessarily about uh, overlooking the particular economic concerns that uh, these other generations, Generation uh, X or Generation Z, who are today's college students, uh, are experiencing because I think that those, uh, you know, Generation X uh, had its own serious problems in the uh, you know, financial crisis. For example, I think that Gen X was probably disproportionately likely to be hardest hit by that fall in house prices that happened during the crisis because Gen X was at the age that had most recently uh, bought into the housing market, uh, had less equity accumulated in housing at that point. It was easier for Gen X to tip in to you know, be underwater on their mortgage at that period. Um, you know, I think that Gen X was kind of at the beginning of the you know, student loan problem, so that is not purely a millennial problem, even though I think that the numbers for millennials are huge. 
the numbers are, are the real issue and why I ended up focusing on the boomers versus millennials um, issue. I think it's because if you look at just the number of people within each cohort in the American population, uh, you know, the reality is that it's the boomers are a very large cohort and then the millennials, their children, are a very large cohort. Uh, Gen X and Gen Z are kind of you know, smaller. They have their own unique economic challenges, but I think that um, you know, in terms of the sheer numbers, uh, I concluded, at least for this book, it is worth um, you know, thinking a little bit about the way that those two cohorts are going to end up jostling off of each other. Thank you. <coughs> I'm John from ITA, Institute of Global, <coughs> Institute of Global Affairs, RSE. Yes, thank you for your um, explanation about, about the economic politics. And actually, Peter, the chair, has a famous theory uh, called um, U.S. application, which means that because what is going on in the U.S. The policy, I mean, from the trade war to China, with China to the tension between U.S. and Europe, and give us give the world a feeling that they don't like to be the world leader. And could you have some comments about on that? And any relation between your theory and uh, Peter's theory? And uh, what is the root cause of American application? What is the root cause of the change of the uh, economics and politics US of the US? Thank you. Well, I'm not going to uh, attempt to answer all of that question because I think it kind of gets into some territory that Peter is working on right now. Uh, but I will observe that in some of these issues that are such hot button issues in American politics right now, whether it's immigration or the trade war, I, I've come to think of this really more in generational terms than partisan terms. Um, you know, I'm a uh, you know, free market conservative in the American style. I have voted for Republicans at various times uh, earlier in my life. Um, you know, right now in the Republican world in America, some Republicans are never Trump Republicans. Some Republicans are very pro-Trump Republicans. As a millennial, I came away being more of a Trump who kind of conservative. Trump, you know, the problem that Trump has and the U.S. politics has right now with Trump is that he is the ultimate boomer politician. Yeah, I spent a little time going through the news archives uh, on some of these issues, and you could find Trump back in the 80s when he was a real estate developer in um, New York complaining about how America was getting its lunch eaten by Japan, you know, in the trade tensions of that era. And in fact, although there's a lot of emphasis on the trade war with uh, China at the moment, uh, you will notice that he also is really frustrated with Germany, uh, and still with Japan. I mean, these are holdovers from the 70s and 80s when that was the big trade tension for uh, the baby boomers in America. Uh, a lot of this immigration stuff um, you know, is very boomer-oriented. I think that a lot of younger conservatives, uh, you know, I know on, on social media, just are just as mystified as people on the left about some of this. It doesn't make a lot of intuitive sense to younger millennial conservatives in America that this is a, a smart policy, um, you know, to take a, such a restrictive approach toward immigration. Um, so I think that you know it's important to think about these issues not only in terms of the partisan divide, which shows up most clearly, 
but also to understand that under the surface there are also a bunch of interesting generational things that might be going on there too. And in fact, you have a lot of, you know, Trump is going to be a big problem for the Republican Party, particularly precisely because he is so off-putting, not just to you know young voters, but also to young conservative voters who have struggled to muster enough partisan loyalty to support him on a lot of these issues and kind of wish that someone who was a little more in touch with millennial concerns might be the, the Republican candidate. Um, so, you know, what, what you're seeing now with some of this, you know, U.S. sort of pulling back from its role in the world or some of the trade war stuff or some of the pulling up the drawbridge on immigration, I think is still the playing out of a lot of these uh, holdover issues from the boomer era, uh, we don't know yet uh, what millennials of either party are going to make of a lot of those issues moving forward. Um, thanks. Um, so just a bit about uh, like the millennial generation. Obviously, I think there's some evidence that there's some kind of arrogance in that we know how to use smartphones and technology and have come up against social justice issues a lot stronger than perhaps previous generations, whether that's true or not, I think that's kind of the perception internally. But then with like the new generation coming up with Extinction Rebellion, people like that, obviously we still have that burden of we're gonna have to look after our elders. That's a growing demographic that is gonna be an economic burden on us. And I don't think this is a generation or any really would abandon their families. And then with it, if there's going to be another um, economic crisis that we're going to have to face, what, what generation is actually going to make the difference for us? And, or is it that I think my question essentially is like, where, is, where are millennials going to go down in history? Is it going to be a kind of lost generation to these economic crises? Oh, gosh. Ask me in 30 years. Um, no, I mean, look, look, it is kind of a, a fair point because, you know, these things don't stay put, right? I mean, the, every year the boomers get a little bit older, every year the millennials get a little bit older. And I think that uh, one of the things that I find so interesting about the economics of the situation is the extent to which we really are coming into uncharted territory for so many reasons, where suddenly it becomes very difficult to understand how some of the transitions that you're talking about will play out. Uh, because I don't think that we have ever experienced in human history a generation that is going to live as long as the boomers will live uh, in the numbers that they will you know, live into a very old age. Um, you know, we don't have any kind of experience with the kind of health needs that you know, boomers are going to have uh, because you know, we have dealt with one series of things that used to kill people off and now we're going to have to deal with this whole other issue of, you know, the health concerns that come up when you do have large numbers of people living to an advanced age. Um, you know, we're going to have to deal with a situation where you have two large cohorts jostling around in the electorate and the society at large and the economy that are roughly evenly sized in the way that the uh, boomers and millennials are. We don't have a lot of experience managing a political transition where the people who are supposed to be transitioning out are going to be lingering for a long time. Um, so I think that, you know, it is going to be a big challenge um, 
you know, to figure out where we're, we're going to go from some of these. In an interesting way, I, I actually find less interesting some of the more cultural or social things that you were hinting at a little bit in the question to do with the you know, smartphone usage or the attitudes or that sort of thing. Uh, because, you know, we do have to remember that these are all very diverse generations. I mean, I think that the boomers sometimes uh, do get a bad rap for, you know, all being a bunch of uh, listless hippies who, you know, didn't know how to plan for the future. That's an unfair caricature in the same way that uh, caricaturing millennials as a bunch of, uh, you know, spendthrift snowflakes is unfair. Um, I think that a lot of these you know, it is going to kind of come down to a political or an economic question more than it will be a social issue in some of those. But, uh, you know, the best I can say at this point is that we're just going down this road that no one has ever had to travel before. Um, how about the gentleman? Uh, hi, thank you. Um, my name is Ben. I'm a, gen I'm a student here at LC. Um, my question is kind of coming back to the avocado paradox in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I think it kind of touches on what um, the person was saying about um, maybe the difference between the millennials and Generation Z with baby boomers uh, that kind of has to do with also like world vision, right? Um, how do millennials and Generation Z think about labor? Do we want to work as much as our parents? Um, and also the question of are we you know, buying avocado toast because we can't save money or because it's just the way we think about our happiness, right? So more kind of deeper question of also um, world vision and how we see our future. And maybe if Alexander Ocasio-Cortez or um, the kind of socialists, uh, democratic socialist candidates are kind of resonating more with millennials and generation Z it's because they're better at articulating a vision of the world that maybe Hillary Clinton didn't do as well as Cortez. So my question is kind of, how does, how do you think that this kind of change of priority and of world vision is gonna affect the political field um, while having also the climate crisis in the backdrop, right? So like, how is it gonna impact the economy and also like the way Republicans and Democrats are gonna have to adjust their discourse? Um, it, you know, sort of some of these generational changes in terms of outlook or idealism or, you know, worldview or the issues that we think are more important than others, I think that might play a role. I mean, you can look at specific issues where clearly there are generational differences. As I mentioned a moment ago, we don't think uh, as millennials that trade and immigration, uh, you know, play out as, as political problems in the way that the boomers did. Um, you know, we have a different emphasis on climate policy than uh, I think a lot of boomers of either the left or the right have done uh, over their careers. One note of caution I would inject, though, is to not then go too far in the direction of thinking that the millennials uh, or Generation Z are going to be completely different from the boomers or anything who have come before. Because, I mean, one of the things that I came to appreciate as I was working on the book is that in terms of the, you know, the things that people want out of life, there aren't actually a huge, the differences are not as big as they appear on the surface. And I think that one way uh, I found particularly enlightening uh, on this front was to look at where people put their money. Because, you know, where, where you spend your household budget every month is a good expression of your values and your priorities. 
And what you discover is that actually millennials are not, uh, you know, spendthrifts in the way that, uh, you know, boomers tend to think that we are. I mean, once we have the job and the income, we actually try to save in a relatively healthy proportion of our income because we value things like the home ownership or the prospect of a secure retirement in the same way that previous generations did. Um, you know, when it comes to our consumer spending, the precise things that we spend on might uh, be somewhat different. I mean, it's certainly true that a lot of people in the retail world are noticing that younger consumers might value experiences more than we value physical purchases. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are spending more money on those uh, experiences. It's just that we're sort of redirecting the same amount of you know, discretionary income as a proportion of your budget uh, to some things instead of other things. At the same time that we care about the kind of economic security that previous generations cared about. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I, I inject that just as a note of caution that in some ways it is true uh, that millennials will probably end up having different political priorities or different life priorities from the boomers. Uh, but we shouldn't assume that that is going to let uh, the political system off the hook for coming up with some answer for some of these basic forms of economic security uh, that millennials are going to want as much as previous generations did. <clears throat> I'm the part of the alumni community. I wonder whether uh, this flight of uh, the millennium is anything to with the gross inequality in the rentier economies, where uh, I wonder whether it is possible to compare uh, the Anglo-Americans and Scandinavian countries, where uh, there might be a different issue altogether. Uh, what uh, Atkinson has been writing, Piketty and Gates, this you see, compared because of the situation of the inequality it reflects on the, um, the millennium community. So while you're thinking mm -hmm. of your answer to that, let's take the second question. You had a question as well, right? Yeah. Um, my name's Indian. I'm a American here for graduate school. Um, my question is more about, it's more cultural. So like millenniums have been deemed the cause of the death of many things. So like owning houses, diamonds, whatever. Um, a 35-year-old man once told me he refuses to identify as a millennial. He's a, he thinks he's part of a micro-generation instead. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask you, do you think this disdain comes from the fact that, the pol that we are speaking up about how these policies aren't working or that we are differentiating ourselves in that way? Or why do you think there is this negative connotation with the millennials. Hmm. Well, I, I, I will say just on, on your last point there that uh, my own brother, who is uh, four years younger than I am, I discovered when I was writing the book as a millennial in denial. He did not want to admit that he is one. Uh, he is uh, actually in the US Air Force uh, and you know, sort of pulls back from the snowflakey cultural image that a lot of people have of millennials. Um, and I'm actually glad to, to get a question about the inequality issue because this is something that I think is going to end up in American politics cutting across um, generational lines a little bit more than it's going to cut across traditional 
partisan lines. Uh, so, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I am an American style free market conservative, and I think that the you know, free market worldview runs through a lot of the book. I think that American conservatives need to grapple more seriously with the inequality problem. I think that, you know, that the, the change that has happened with that, which I think millennials are more aware of than boomers uh, in America right now, is that for a long time in American politics, inequality was not really a potent political issue because people tended not to resent the rich so long as you felt like you had opportunities yourself to advance. I think that what is changing for millennials is the sense that actually those opportunities aren't there anymore. Uh, that you have uh, opportunities to advance economically if you manage to get into the right college or if you uh, manage to work in the right industry that benefits from the right kind of regulatory environment or the right kind of subsidies from the government. Uh, but if you want to do other things, uh, you don't have that opportunity to get ahead. Um, I think that that is the thing that makes inequality much more of a potent issue. Now, I mean, I think that you can have a really interesting discussion and uh, conservative millennials in America might want to have this discussion about how much of this inequality problem is the result of, uh, you know, cold market forces versus how much of it is a result of, uh, you know, government interventions in the economy that do favor some parts of the economy over others. I think that that is the kind of political argument, the you know, left-right argument that maybe millennials do want to have, but you are not going to get very far with millennials of either the left or the right if you are arguing that you know, inequality as it currently exists is not a problem at all. And I get a little irritated when I hear some of my compatriot, older compatriots on the political right in America trying to dismiss out of hand these arguments because they are still of this worldview that uh, you know the inequality of outcome doesn't matter so long as you have equality of opportunity. When millennials are saying, do we really have equality of opportunity right now? Or what are the ways that economic policy is malfunctioning for us uh, that we need to address? So I think that, you know, I, in a way, I have come to view the millennial political concern with inequality. It always tops, um, you know, is in, in one of the top issues when you ask millennials, what do you think is a problem in the economy? And, you know, we should take that seriously because there are a lot of ways in which you can look at inequality right now as a symptom that things have gone wrong uh, in the economy, that millennials are not getting the opportunities that we thought that we would get and that an economy should create for young people. Um, so, you know, I think, I think from that perspective, it's a, a serious problem. Uh, so, it, you know, for, for those who, who didn't hear, I, you know, the follow-up question was about, you know, this complaint that it is a, a result, particularly if you look at something like property of a rentier economy, uh, you know, here in, in the UK. I mean, I think that the bigger concern for millennials often in the housing market is just the supply. I mean, the thing that's going wrong for us is not that you have a lot of foreign buyers who are coming in, it's that you don't have a supply of you know, housing coming onto the market that we can buy in the places where the job market is pulling us. Um, and you know, that's a perfect example 
of how politicians of any generation need to be careful not to just go for the easy answer, which might be you know, something like a, you know, additional stamp duty and second properties or something like that, but you need to actually look at um, you know, the broader policy environment. I mean, are we adopting economic policies that are trying to overinflate asset prices like housing uh, to achieve some other result and at the same time you're making it impossible for people to climb onto the ladder? But you, you, you can't engage that kind of discussion um, at all, and particularly not from the free market right, so long as you are busy denying that there is a problem at all. So I have, oh, no, no, go ahead. I'll hold my question. Back there. <clears throat> Hey, um, so you say you're a, a free market conservative and you talk about this problem of, of the generation of people who have accumulated wealth and the millennials who have not been able to do that and maybe there's been slightly better job opportunities for subsequent generations but the same principles apply. So as a free market conservative is the natural conclusion to that that at some point these assets that have been accumulated, they're gonna, there's going to be an almighty crash in, in the value of them as they essentially hit the market to a bunch of people who cannot afford them. So I, I, I think basically the, the gist of that question is like, how are we going to get out of this jam? And if only I knew that. Um, you know, I think that that is a big part of the dilemma that uh, millennials are going to have to deal with is the fact that we are now so far down this road that the further down you get, the harder it becomes to uh, recover from it. I think that in a market like housing, one interesting problem that is going to start emerging is the fact that you do have millennials who have now climbed onto the housing ladder. You know, what is a solution that is going to um, you know, meet their needs in some sort of accept, you know, politically acceptable way at the same time that you're going to rebalance asset prices to help the people who have not climbed on the ladder yet. Um, and again, I think that this is the kind of problem that increasingly is going to, um, you know, be a factor in millennial politics. And I think that, you know, this might actually be a, a, a good note to end on as we get toward the, the end of this evening because, you know, we've been talking and really the framing of, of the book is very much in terms of boomers versus millennials because that is kind of the world that we're in right now. The further down the road you go, you also end up with some of these distributional problems that are going to develop within the millennial generation. Um, and you know, we, are, we only see very dimly at this point what the contours of some of those debates might be let alone what some of the solutions uh, might be. But I think that the next stage of this discussion is not just going to be boomers versus millennials, but it's going to be balancing the interests of various groups of millennials. You know, the student debt crisis is another good example of that, where you have some uh, older millennials who have managed to pay off all of their student debt saying, well, hang on a sec, why should my tax money be used to bail out other millennials who didn't? Um, so, you know, some of these issues are going to end up not being purely along generational lines, you know, far into the future, even if that is kind of the contour of the debate right now. I'm wondering if I can get you to um, say a few words about um, how the Republicans are dealing with the, or not dealing with the millennial challenge. I mean, earlier on you said, you know, that you were 
frustrated with the Republican Party because unlike the all of the energy, all of the proposals basically are coming from the Democratic side. They're not coming from the Republican side. And so, you know, what's that about? I mean, this is not just Donald Trump. Um, you know, is it, I mean, is it the nature of, one of the things you talked about earlier on was how the millennial cohort, the demographics, and, and perhaps the class dimensions are, are different than, let's say, the, the boomers, more diverse. Mm -hmm. um, and does that present a special challenge for Republicans in a way that it doesn't for um, Democrats? Or, you know, I mean, I wonder if the Republicans are simply trapped by their own ideology. So that the problem is if you look that this is not an easy problem to solve with the market. Well, it's a question. Yeah. I, you know, uh -huh. what, why are they having so much more trouble? I mean, Paul Ryan was there. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, there were. It, it didn't just start with Donald Trump. Well, I, I think first off, it's it's interesting to observe as an American living here in London that this is actually not just a problem of the Republican Party. This is also a problem that the Conservative Party in this country has. And. Uh, American Republicans are deranged by Trump. I think that conservatives here are deranged by Brexit right now, which if you look at a lot of the opinion polling on the age cohorts that support Brexit, it is very much an old man and an old woman's game. Uh, you know, young voters, I think, on both the political left and the right tend to be a lot less sympathetic to it. Um, and it is kind of the acting out of, uh, you know, political priorities that mattered a lot to a certain kind of boomer that just seem increasingly irrelevant to a younger generation. I actually think that uh, you know part of the problem is political rather than ideological. I think that a, a problem that I have observed of parties on the political right is that they grew very comfortable assuming that the electorate would inevitably age into voting for conservatives. Um, you know, there was this notion that everyone starts out on the left when they're very young and ideal, you know, idealistic, and then over time you buy the house, you start the family, you have to pay taxes, you start drifting, you know, further to the political right. And I think, you know, I think that for a, a long period that basically held true. What they haven't realized is that you know, there's a problem in the fact that the electorate for both the Republicans, I think, and the Tories here is just getting older and older and older. Suddenly you don't have younger people aging into voting for these parties of the right when they're middle-aged. And I think that one you know, perspective on this, especially among older millennials who are now into their 30s and kind of hitting that point where you would have expected some of this rightward drift, uh, is the fact that, you know, the older skewing electorates within these parties and the fact that there are large numbers of boomers still around within that older cohort within the parties is dragging them into this focus on the policy priorities of that right-of-center boomer electorate at the expense of any kind of attempt to appeal to younger voters. Uh, and in fact, some of these stereotypes about socialist millennials or snowflake millennials don't help because then the very frustrating conversation that you will have is, well, 
you know, why should we be sympathetic to people who are foolish enough to vote for someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is, you know, ideologically out in the stratosphere somewhere, and you can't explain to them that actually that vote for a politician like that is a response to the fact that your side isn't really offering anything viable either. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a certain amount of political complacency that has set in. Um, the, they are in for a rude shock when they discover that millennials are not automatically going to age into voting for the Republicans or voting for the Tories the older we get. I thought we weren't going to be able to end on a hopeful note, but we are. <laughs> Joe, I want to thank you for a fascinating talk uh, and for joining us here this evening. Please join me. Joseph Stenberg is a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal, where he writes the political economics column. He's also the author of the new book, The Theft of a Decade, How the Baby Boomers Stole the Millennials' Economic Future. Check out this feed for a one-on-one -on -one interview with Joseph Sternberg, who talks about the economics now facing millennials. This podcast was produced by Chris Gilson and Michaela Herman, and was supported by the Phelan family. To listen to our other event recordings and episodes of our regular podcast, The Ballpark, just enter LSE U.S. Center into your search engine of choice. We'd love to hear what you think about the U.S. Center and our events. Email us any feedback at uscenter at lsc.ac.uk or send us a tweet at lse underscore us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.